Welcome back to the 128th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including can AI help us get to that beautiful socialist utopia of central planning, why we're having a lot of job openings, but not as much working hours being put on the books, and the Democrats are concerned that the Republicans are going to renege on their default deal that they made with the White House. We'll see how all that pans out. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So what would an AI-powered utopia look like for you? If you're creating it, if you're going to make a book, if you're going to be Asimov, you're going to make a science fiction book that describes a world where humanity has everything they could ever want, and it's powered by by AI. I think that's a really crucial part of this question because I want to see what people come up with. I want to see how creative y'all can be down in the comment section. What would the system of government be? What would the market system be like? And what kind of different tech would be evolved in everyday life? Will we all have VR headsets? Will we have flying cars? I want to know what you guys think. So let me know down in the comment section, and hopefully I can read some interesting ideas and maybe you know we can collaborate in the future and write something about it in a little short story because i'm trying to practice my writing a little bit but that's devoid of the point let's jump to our first story it comes from the american institute for economic research can artificial intelligence solve the socialist calculation problem and what they're trying to outline here is when a socialistic system is proposed Most of the workings of the market and industry and even some of the individual choices have to be calculated. They have to be planned. They have to be centralized. You'll see a lot of people, or if you listen to Kyle Kalinske, for example, the example he gives is when it comes to oil production, that should be nationalized, meaning that it is all brought underneath the federal government And though there may be different branches in different regions, at the end of the day, the overall production levels, where we drill, why we drill, would be planned centrally in the federal government or the federal government bureaucracy. So that is what socialism, to a simple, very simple degree, is doing. It is bringing all of the aspects of the market economically under one roof, and it's leaving the decisions to be made centrally for the most part. There can, of course, be regional offices that decide a few things, but overall, those regional offices would have to report to the highest authority, the highest bureaucracy, in order to get their quotas for the year. Oh, no, 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 region, South Region, you can only produce 2,000 yards of steel this week because we don't want you to overproduce and then devalue the steel in other markets and things of this nature. So that means that in order to have an effectively centralized system, you have to have a lot of raw data that you're analyzing and understanding. And then the question becomes, okay, well, humans can't necessarily do it, no matter how large a bureaucracy is. There's too much information. Some things are going to get past it. What about using AI, which can process information information so much faster than we can and could even see patterns that we're not able to and it's been an interesting topic that's brought up in different science fiction books and let's be clear i don't think the socialists who exist in america today are like yes 
AI will solve our problem. I don't think they're out there trying to champion AI, truly believing that AI will be the solution. But the author is trying to cut this off at the neck because if you can't tell by his sarcastic question, he does not agree with the premise. And he's trying to make sure that if people do have this illusion, they at least consider his counter-arguments beforehand. All right, so there are reasons he says no. Let's jump to this quote. Quote, So could artificial intelligent machines at last prove the central planners right? No, they could not. And I'll answer the question in three ways. First, it's theoretically impossible because the problem is about information generation, not calculation of given information. Second, even if sufficient information existed to do the calculations, human incentives would tinker with the machine's programming, biasing their performance. Three, if the machines escaped the biased control of humans, their interest would not necessarily be congruent with humanity's interest. So I'll stop there. There's a little bit more to the quote, but let's review. One, it's not actually about calculating given information. It's about generating new information. We'll actually tackle this one a little bit further down in the article because he has a really good way of laying this one out. And it makes sense when you've read the article, but I don't want to jump the gun at all. I do want to address the other two. The idea that people will tinker with the incentives of the machine or the AI program. I think that's a very interesting one. And you have to have the worldview that humans are not perfect. They're not always looking out for the interest of the collective, of the whole, and that they are inherently self-interested. And it's kind of pervasive, or at least that idea is pervasive in the world we live in. We live in a liberal society that tries to use the self-interest of one person or, you know, their family and allow, give them a way to channel that to help the collective through the free market. Oh, okay, you really want a rubber ducky for your child. You know it'll make your child happy. So you have a self-incentive to get the rubber ducky. Well, then you want to buy one. Who's going to make one? A company that realizes, okay, hey, we have a self-interest here because we can make money and we can also satisfy that other person's need for the rubber ducky. And then the company has to pay taxes. Well, you know, it's in the self-interest of the company to pay taxes so they, they don't get, you know, hit by the government. They don't get raided or shut down. And therefore, paying their taxes helps the systems that help society go along. Also, they have an incentive to charge the best price to their customers. That's a self-interest so that they can, at the end of the day, continue to make money and also so that they could pay their shareholders. You see how we have a whole bunch of systems in place that channel self-interest into things that would be better for society as a whole, and we can produce more jobs this way, we can help fund the government this way, and we can try to create the semblances of a collective system, a system that works for the collective while also serving the self-interest. Now, of course, that does fall apart in a lot of ways, but it doesn't always work perfectly. And we have to acknowledge this because sometimes people's self-interest does supersede the system. And that's what this author is talking about here, which is no matter how great you create the AI, if somebody gets in there and tinkers it and says, oh, well, you know, actually, my home state of Colorado, 
I want them to have a little bit extra production this month. I think that we could benefit from the extra credits we may get. Or maybe I just want my home district to have a few more hours and I can go and claim to my constituents, hey, you know, I talked with the social planners or the central planners of the steel industry and I made sure that they reworked the AI algorithm so that our county would get more jobs. Now, re-elect me to office. You can see how this could be tinkered with. And if it's centralized in one place in Washington, D.C., that makes it easier for people to come and pressure the people that program the AI to change the code. And, of course, you know, we could make it self-sustaining. We could make it so that, oh, okay, hey, we're going to make it and we're going to leave it. You can't change it. You can't try to get rid of any different incentives. You can't try to alter anything afterwards. But then you would even have to look at the programmers and how they are biased and what they value when creating the AI. And we will get to that quote as well because I think that's an interesting one. And third, if the machines escape the bias that we have, then their interests wouldn't necessarily be congruent with humanity's interests. This one I have a hard time with. I go back and forth because if it becomes purely sentient, then how can we guarantee that it will align with human interests? But also, if it becomes sentient through the programming that we gave it, then it probably is going to be inherently human-centric. And there's actually a big battle going on in the AI community about, well, if it breaks free, if we program it right, then it will be interested in protecting humans. But if it really breaks free, will it be interested in protecting humans anymore? There's an ongoing debate in the AI department, the world, and this author just works under the assumption that if it breaks free, it will no longer care. I can't really comment on this one. I don't have a good, strong opinion on it because I don't truly understand the mechanisms of how we're creating AI well enough to make an argument in either direction. So we kind of laid it out here. We laid out the three different ways that he goes about this. But I want to talk about the first one because I said we would get back to it. So let's talk about the, the current system and how it kind of breaks AI, or at least this author would argue that it breaks AI. Quote, how can private businesses do so with such fragmentary data? And what he's referring to here is how can the small businesses in your community respond to changing trends? And he was mentioning that the AI, it's not a problem of collecting data, it's about generating data. And the reason this is important is, actually, I'll keep going, but the reason he's highlighting this here is he's explaining how the system is going about doing it now, and then how that doesn't necessarily work for AIs. Quote, lots of guesswork and analysis based on past voluntary transactions and continual updating based on new income data but the machines could only copy the process one time after that. All economic exchange pre-directed and the data generated of voluntary exchange would no longer exist. The machines would be unable to update their calculations using future exchanges the way that firms in markets do. All this was explained in Friedrich Hayek's 1945 article, The Use of Knowledge in Society, preemptively rebutting Asimov's 1950 supposition about the machines. Fortunately, Asimov seemed to have been unaware of Hayek's argument, or we might have missed a classic, if misguided, science fiction story. Curiously, Akimolov 
explicitly references Hayek's essay, but seems unaware of the argument within it, which, end quote. So basically what he's saying is once you set the program, once you use the data that you have already, and it the program works, or in theory it should work, and it centrally plans everything, then... The system is saying, okay, hey, no, we can't create more than 4,000 loaves of bread. So then as it sends out its commands to all the other bakeries, then the bakeries make 400 loaves of bread. Oh, but this week someone else wants one extra loaf of bread. Well, you can't update the system now. You can't see how much extra bread production actually causes a trail-off in the demand for bread. Basically, you can't adjust based on new circumstances. And the reason you're probably thinking, wait, hold on, hold on, why does that bread situation work? So if a company says, okay, last week we sold 300 pieces of or loaves of bread, and this week we're going to say, well, I think it's a holiday weekend, I think maybe there are a few more people coming, we'll make 350 and then you sell 350 And then you're thinking in your head, okay, well, you know, this week I think I got a few more returning customers, maybe we'll make 375 and then the holiday weekend's over, and you actually only sell 340 this time. Well, you have to adjust on the fly now. There are different circumstances. And even when you do that, the people who come in and might buy multiple loaves of bread, if you only have 300, you can no longer determine how much they value that extra loaf of bread if it goes over the amount of bread you have. So if people buy two loaves of bread, they may be willing to pay $1 for the first one, and 50 cents for the next one because they already have one loaf of bread. So that next loaf of bread isn't as valuable. But if your quota is that each person only gets one loaf of bread, then you're saying that every single loaf of bread is worth $1. But if they have the opportunity to get more, it may actually be less. So the economic calculation can't ever be truly perfect because it works on the supposition that, no, no, this is a hardline, rigid system that doesn't change. And while economics likes to pretend that everybody's rational actors, that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes people do weird things. Circumstances change. Sometimes there are different ways that people want to cook their bread. Oh my gosh, no way. Or maybe there's sometimes that they want to take out the center of their bread and make a bread bowl for their soup like you would get at Panera, and they need an extra loaf to actually make their sandwiches. So there are lots of different circumstances and calculations that this machine couldn't actually do because they haven't been generated yet. They haven't been done yet, and it can only work off of past data rather than allowing for innovation and change moving forward. And that's what the the argument the author is really saying about the first one. And the second one, he really, this is the one I really harp on, which is people are self-interested. People are selfish. Economics assumes this. So then to assume that any system that would be put in place would not be tampered with by people or the programmers who create it wouldn't have a certain value system is very naive to believe. I mean, imagine if a programmer grew up in a city and he absolutely loves cities. And when doing the math and having the AI say what situation is better economically, which one's more efficient for humanity, it says city dweller equals 1.5, rural folk equals 1.12, or something like this, and they adjust the values. They tell it what to value, basically. 
And someone who grew up in the country may be like, hey, no, city boy, you're crazy. It's way more beautiful out here. I get way more joy being out here in nature than you would in the city. And then if he created an AI, he would say, oh, rural person equals 1.5, city dweller equals 1.16. And you could see how they would bake in different assumptions about how we should live as a society. So we could never create a truly perfect system because everybody has their biases. And there's no one that's purely objective. And even if you ran it through a giant committee with thousands upon thousands of people reviewing things, that's still never going to truly capture every single person. It's truly never going to look at the kid that's being born right now and understand exactly how they're going to feel about any given situation in the future. So that's why central planning doesn't work, especially when done with an AI. Because what's dangerous about doing it with an AI is we believe it's objective. We believe that because it's an AI system, it or at least we could fall into the illusion that because it's an AI system, it is above. It is more intelligent than we ever could be. It's processing information way faster than we ever could. So how could it ever be flawed in any way, shape, or form? And then we would just end up worshiping, worshiping and bowing to the AI. Yes, AI, I love when you give me two loaves of bread per week, but... I understand that you could only give me one. Thank you, dear AI. And it just, it's going to turn out really bad, at least in my opinion, when I think about it as a very cynical person or when I take my cynical hat, put it on, rather than my optimistic hat, which is, oh, yeah, AI, you know, it tells us exactly how much we need. It comes up with all the new innovations. It just works in the background and we can have a nice leisurely life where we get to do whatever we want to do and it just creates all the wealth and it runs all the programs. You know, I have multiple hats that I put on every once in a while, but when it comes to AI, I'm a little bit more skeptical, a little bit more cynical. We got to be very cautious moving forward and understand, no, it is not the solution to all our problems. It's a tool like everything else. If we use it right, it'll be great. If we use it wrong, bye-bye humanity. All right, let's jump to our second article that comes from the Wall Street Journal. Lots of hiring, but not so much working. So, honestly, I'm not going to try to give too much of a prelude here. I'm going to jump straight into a quote to really describe what's going on. Quote, the hiring boom obscures what looks like a contradictory economic trend. Employees are working fewer hours. The average number of hours worked a week by private sector employees declined to 34.3 in May, below the 2019 and down from the peak of 35 hours in January 2021, according to the Labor Department. This could be ominous. With growth now slowing and by one measure negative, some employers might be responding by cutting hours, perhaps in preparation for a recession. Quote, in the past, reducing workers' hours has been a reliable harbinger of waves of layoffs, said Achia Amina, senior U.S. economist at Norima securities, end quote. So we set the stage here. It's ominous. Oh my goodness. We are cutting hours. You know, it's getting really tight for the employers that are saying, hey, I can't actually fund those extra hours that you want to do, Bob. I'm sorry. You do a great job fixing up those loaves of bread. Sorry to connect the two. You bake some of the best loaves of bread, but I need you to do it for one last hour today because I can't afford to pay you. That's what this would normally indicate. But there's also a counter effect to the pandemic that may be baked in here, maybe baked into the bread a little bit 
wow, I'm really taking this analogy about bread really far. I think I'm just hungry. That, that may be what it is. Quote, in May, the average factory worker, worker had 3.6 overtime hours, down from 4.1 a year earlier. Throughout much of the pandemic, American Fleet was churning out diesel engines for trucking companies. The Springfield, Missouri business couldn't hire fast enough, said sales manager Mark Patterson. Quote, we could do 30 engines a month easily, and last year we were doing something like 40. The guys were doing overtime and getting it all done, he said. Then earlier this year, roaring growth came to an abrupt end. Orders of American Fleet's engines are down around 40% as consumers' pandemic-driven goods buying binge waned, leaving truckers sitting idle. The company shifted from desperately posting job ads online to cutting worker hours. Normally, reduced worker hours could signal impending job cuts, but Patterson said American Fleet isn't planning layoffs because mechanics are so hard to find. With fewer orders to fill, workers are prepping engine blocks and upgrading equipment. He's optimistic that sales will start to pick up again based on container ships' arrivals, but that will take time to filter through, end quote. So, if you can kind of see the underlying message here, and the article does go on to explain this a little bit better, that employers are, it's twofold. One, they hired a whole bunch of people, and they don't want to let them go because they're afraid that they won't be able to get them back. Because there are so many other job openings across the market, they're afraid that if they let these people go, they'll never get them back. And also, it is a retention plan seeing the future. They're understanding or responding to COVID and the supply shocks that we've had, and they've grown to understand, okay, they're only temporary. And if we cut hours, we can keep these good workers who already know how to go through the process. We don't have to train anybody new. And then when things pick back up, we can have them go full force. And they've already been used to doing a whole bunch of overtime when things were great. And this is an interesting boom-bust cycle that you see. Okay, hey, we're having a boom time. You're going to be working overtime. We're not going to hire any new people, or maybe we'll hire one or two. And then the bus time comes. Hey, okay, we know that things are a little bit cyclical right now. It's not a real recession where everything's just a downturn. So we're just going to cut your hours, expecting things to get better in the future. Now it could come back and bite them in the butt because maybe there is an actual recession and they do have to let people go. And they were holding on to too many people for too long and paying a little bit too much money to their employees. Maybe, but we'll see how it pans out. I just wanted to bring this one up because it's an interesting post-COVID response. And this is the beautiful thing about the business world, or at least the free market. It responds in ways that we don't necessarily think of intuitively at first, but it's very quick to learn the habits of the market, or at least the companies that survive are. And then we can actually use them as templates to understand how the pandemic affects certain industries, how they change the norms of society, so on and so forth. So it will be interesting to look back on this in three years and talk to this owner of this company again and say, hey, did that, you know, cutting hours actually work for you in retaining your good employees who were able to respond quickly when things turned around? Did that actually work for you? And maybe in 30 years, they'll be talking about lots of companies that were doing this and it becomes part of a business textbook. It's a beautiful thing about our system the free market system. It's constantly evolving. It's constantly changing. We're constantly learning. And it's all because we love bread and we want more bread. So we want to be able to pay for bread. We want to be able to produce bread. 
and we just really, really want to make sure that we have all of our incentives in place so we can get that loaf of bread and keep on getting better at getting that bread. And yes, I know, it does work in both ways in this case. Yes, get that bread, get that money. But also, you know, loaves of bread, I mean, they're pretty they're pretty darn scrumptious, so why not? All right, I promise I'll drop it after this one. It's it's not gonna it's not gonna matter. Or maybe it will be because we're going to our last article from HuffPost. Democrats fear GOP plans for deeper spending cuts and may lead to a government shutdown. So if you remember the deal that, you know, Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden cut when they were trying to figure out this whole debt ceiling issue, the GOP said, "Okay, hey, we're going to we want to limit spending to 2022 levels." And they kind of came up with a half deal which is okay, for this next year, if we can't come up with another deal, then it's going to keep the budget a little bit lower on non-essential spending and non-military spending, and we're going to cut a few programs here or there, but Biden was able to expand some of his plans and make sure that the GOP didn't get too far away with anything. Well, now the GOP is coming back to the table and said, hey, we put caps on spending. We said we won't spend more than this certain amount, but that doesn't mean we can't try to pass appropriation bills to cut more spending in other places. And the Democrats are kind of outraged. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You said we had a deal. What do you mean you're going back on your deal? That's the framing that they have here. And that's where HuffPost is coming from. And the Republican argument is, hey, 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 we do have a deal. We said we wouldn't spend more than this amount. That doesn't mean we can't try to cut more spending in other places. So it's a little bit tricky on the part of the Republicans. But also, you know, you figure if they want to cut spending, they're going to cut a deal in order to make sure that we don't default on our national debt, and then they're going to rein in spending in other places. So I think the Democrats knew that this was coming. They probably saw it coming, but they're going to take any opportunity they can to call out the GOP and make sure that they highlight what they see as, you know, unhonest partnership in the government, saying, hey, no, 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 we had a deal. Don't you dare try to go back on it now. They're trying to come from a righteous position, and I wouldn't say necessarily they're right or wrong. I, To be realistic, I would expect this from the Republicans because the contingent of the GOP, the House Freedom Caucus, I believe it's 11 members right now, they can have an outsized effect on the party because it's such a thin margin in the House. If they decide that they're not voting with McCarthy on particular issues, then McCarthy's going to have to go court the Democrats, meaning they may actually have to make concessions that are not conservative in nature. So this is kind of McCarthy saying, okay, hey, we got the mainstream deal through. Now I'm going to try to appease this contingent of more MAGA, more America first Republicans in the Congress, make sure they're still on my side. And also it benefits me because I told America that I would try to rein in spending and I'll try. Now, the really annoying part about this, in my opinion, is that the House is in the hands of the Republicans. The Senate and the White House are in the hands of the Democrats. And in order for, even if it got past the Senate, anything they try to do got past the Senate, then it would go to Joe Biden, and they would need a two-thirds majority in the Senate in order to get it past Joe Biden if he vetoes it. So it really is more symbolic than anything, unless they can come up with legislation that appeases both sides. And considering the Republicans want a lot of heavy cuts, I don't see it necessarily 
appealing to the Democrats? Because let's be clear, I'm not saying the Democrats aren't fiscally responsible and they're not willing to cut. They may well be willing to cut. It just probably will be in areas that Republicans don't necessarily like. So it's more symbolic than anything. But it makes McCarthy try to play his cards the best he can and make sure that he doesn't really get the House Freedom Caucus really mad so that on important issues they can vote with him and they can at least try to force the Senate hand, Senate's hands in some you know, important situations. So let's talk about the divide in the GOP. I'll read you a quote from here so you really understand what McCarthy's going through right now. Quote, Speaker Kevin McCarthy's aide to appease Republican hardliners and get the House moving it again after a recent party rebellion on the floor has some Democrats warning of a difficult road ahead when it comes to passing legislation that will keep the government running. Republicans tied up votes this last week on guns and censuring one former President Donald Trump's most prominent critics, Adam Schiff. Those votes helped get the House moving again, though the latter effort failed, with Schiff helped by some 20 Republicans. The most consequential move of the week, however, was an announcement from GOP leadership that arrived with little fanfare. Republicans said they planned to pursue appropriation bills, which fund government programs and agencies with less spending than the top-line numbers they agreed to in a deal with the White House last month. End quote. And, you know, to be clear, not last month. It was literally two weeks ago. So I know HuffPost is trying to be a, a little nice here. No, no. It was literally two weeks ago that they made this deal. And, of course, whether you think this is dishonest or not is where you come down. Like I said, if you're a Democrat, you're thinking, nah, this is, this is not honest. McCarthy, you are trying to screw us over. And if you're a Republican, it's like, hey, hey, no, no, no. We were very specific. We were very lawyerly with our words. We are going to have a cap. We are going to cut from there. Come on, get with it, guys. A lot of you are lawyers. You understand the nuance of what we did there. And, you know, it's an interesting place for McCarthy and his caucus, or, sorry, his party to really be in. And to be clear, I think there are certain places that we could cut some spending or at least readjust how that spending is distributed. I think, of course, we should probably stop with this non-essential spending or the non-mandatory spending conversation and address the mandatory spending, which is Social Security and Medicare. I don't know the best solution going forward. I honestly don't have the ultimate plan, but maybe we could do something where in for Social Security, for example, in certain sectors, you have a private Social Security system that's set up for uh, the steel industry or Oh, hold on. Let's hear this one. The bread industry. Yes, we have a bread only social security fund. And I'm kind of joking, but this would be that, okay, hey, the sector itself can decide how much of your paycheck it actually decides to put aside to a social security fund that goes to the workers from that system. And then the people who work in that industry could vote. Okay, hey, I want to be fiscally responsible. Let's put 25% of my paycheck. That's a big chunk. Let's put that much into my Social Security. And then you could have another industry that maybe it's Wall Street, and they're saying, oh, no, no, I make enough money that I can invest on the side. I only want 1% of my paycheck to go to Social Security. Now, of course, there are lots of problems that come from that. I came up with that relatively on the fly. But we need to have a serious conversation about these systems because they are probably going to fail within our lifetimes. 
or at least they're going to start cutting back on the amount of benefits they give. And as a person who has been paying into Social Security already, and let's be clear, it hasn't been that long, but I've been doing it since I was 15, and the system may collapse, it may not be around when I retire, that really, really frustrates me. And I'm sorry to the people who have been paying in their entire lives that are going to get messed up too from any changes that we make, but this is a sustainability issue. Either we need to come up with a system that works and will be sustainable, or we outright get rid of it and we encourage people to be responsible and save their own money. Of course, you know, that's really harsh, but sometimes that's a reality. So I don't know. We're going to hit a wall where this reality is going to be abrupt and painful. And I would rather people be ready for that than believe that their Social Security is still going to be there when it's not going to be when they retire. All right, that's enough of the you know, the bad talk, the overly cynical talk. Let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from the Animal Rescue site. Pink baby elephant receives the best protection from the adults of its herd in this video. And you know, sometimes, or some of you actually may know about that really protective aunt or uncle that is always keeping you safe. Well, that's kind of like this situation. Quote, baby elephants receive the best protection, not only from their biological mothers, but also from their grandmas and aunties, end quote. And if you watch the video here, I mean, just imagine having a security detail protecting you when you just step out of the way of somebody or you're just trying to go to the water fountain. Imagine that's what it's like. Quote, female elephants express protectiveness in different ways. The most known method of protection is surrounding the baby elephants whenever the herd walks together. They ensure that both the baby and the mother are perfectly hidden from whatever danger lurks around them, end quote. But they weren't exactly perfectly protected from the camera. So if you want to see any of these cute photos or videos or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the links to the podcast on Spotify, Podcast, Google Podcast, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at your daily flip. This episode should be going out on Wednesday. So if you go to the Twitter, I put out a Twitter tirade yesterday and there will be another one coming on Thursday. Yesterday we talked about aliens. Thursday, I don't know what we're going to be talking about quite yet, but that is Twitter exclusive content where I kind of just rant and rave and don't go through this normal process of having quotes laid out and having the articles in front of me. So with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe, don't die.